most painful effects of sin is the fact that it separates and alienates us from God. When God created this beautiful garden and made Adam and Eve, he was there with them and they were united to him in a, in a perfect way. But then they rebelled against him and God cast them out of the garden. They no longer walked with God in the special way they had before. Since then, all of us have had this huge distance away from God. We have been separated from him. And that's why we need someone to bridge the gap. We need a mediator. A mediator is someone who acts as a go-between. The word mediator comes from the same place as we get the word medium, meaning something or someone in the middle. And that is exactly what a mediator does. They stand in the middle between two parties as they bridge the gap. And we started this series last week on what it means that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He is prophet and priest and king. And we looked at the fact last week that he is a prophet, that not only is he a messenger from God, but he is also the message. He is the true and final word from God. And tonight, I want us to look at the fact that he is our priest. There were priests in the Old Testament, and with what we've seen there in the, in the garden, the relationship between man and God was broken. The only hope then for the people is that there would be some sort of reconciliation, that there would be atonement. Now, atonement is a really simple word that pretends it's a difficult theological one. It's dressed up for us. Atonement means that there are two separate entities that will be made at one, at one, atonement, at one Now, the priests had an important role in this atonement. We'll see that later on. But the priests themselves only pointed forward to the Lord Jesus. God had a very specific purpose in mind when he said that Israel needed these people called priests. You can read all about the specific things that God set out there in uh, the Old Testament books of Exodus and Leviticus. But what does it mean for us in, in these New Testament days? Well, you can look at the whole book of Hebrews. It explains it better than I ever could. But uh, it shows us how Jesus not only fulfills this role, but he transforms it into something far better. But in order that this may be a sermon that feeds you and challenges you and encourages you, rather than being some dry theological lecture, let's consider tonight why Jesus being the great high priest is good news for us today. But let's look at five reasons why it's good news that Jesus is our great high priest. Firstly, Jesus is a priest who knows how you feel. Jesus is a priest who knows how you feel. I don't know if you've had this, I'm sure you have. It can be really frustrating when you're going through uh, times of difficulty. You've had a, a falling out at school, maybe, or you've got a, 
a, a really rough situation at work or sadness in the family, whatever it may be, and something awful has happened and, and it's giving you sleepless nights. You, you've gone off your food completely. It's taking everything to just get out of bed in the morning. And you confide in someone. You tell someone how you feel. And you say, this is, this is what's happening to me at the moment. And they say, I know exactly how you feel. And it's reassuring to hear that when someone tells you that. But then they try to explain why they know exactly how you feel. And they've got this story of something that's happened to them. And you realize they've got no idea what it means to go through what you've just been through. It's nothing like it. And it's crushing, isn't it? But the same can't be said of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is not this distant deity who stays far away. Not understanding the battles that you face, the temptations that you struggle with, and the weaknesses that you're beset with. No, the accounts of the life of Jesus and the words that we have here in the letter to the Hebrews underline the fact that Jesus knows exactly how we feel. Listen to those words again from Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, talking about Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. You see, his life wasn't a purposeless tool to the world that he had created. No, Jesus came for a specific reason, didn't he? He came to seek and save the lost. He came to redeem his people. And the priests in the Old Testament were representatives of the people. They they stood as these mediators for brothers and sisters. And if Jesus was to follow this pattern, then he had to be born as a human. He had to experience the same things that his brothers and sisters experienced. And that's why he shares our humanity. He has flesh and blood. And as the verse says, he didn't come to help the angels. He came to help Abraham's descendants, human beings like you and me. And so he arrived with vulnerability, with frailty, and with weakness. Uh, an embryo. As the Chris, Christmas hymn says, our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. The creator who spoke everything into existence. <laughs> now totally dependent, being born in a borrowed stable, needing his mother to feed him, his father to clothe him, provide for him, running away from parents who wanted him dead, living as a refugee in Egypt, coming back to this remote nowhere town in Nazareth where he slowly learns his father's trade and he gives that up and, and begins his ministry. And as he does that, he's ridiculed by his own family. They say he's out of his mind. He preaches the truth, but is hated by the ones he came to save. This is what qualifies Jesus to be our representative. He's not a stranger to strife and difficulty. He shares our weakness. 
And there you can see in chapter 5 and verse 8, you've got your Bibles in front of you. It says, he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus had to learn obedience. His whole life was training and qualification for him to be able to be ready to represent us. And he not only shares our weaknesses, but he shares our temptations. It says we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Those last three words are, are wonderful to hear. Jesus lived without sin. In the wilderness, he won the victory where Adam and Eve had failed. He refused to believe the devil's lies. The devil, once again, asking his favorite question to us, did God really say that? And Jesus armed himself with the word of God, the sword of the spirit, and renders Satan useless. Or think of when he was in another garden and he faces temptation. The second Adam goes through the same trials as the first Adam goes through. On the night of his arrest, we read these words. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It was not the Lord Jesus' human desire to face God's judgment. To drink that cup of wrath was not his human desire. He understandably asks his father if there's any other way. And that's the temptation that we all face. You might think, what does Jesus know about what I have to face? Well, he faces the same thing in terms of we all want to do our own will and not God's. Whether that be in, in the little moments of our lives or the big decisions. And yet Jesus passes the test. He says, not my will, but yours be done. And that's good news for us. He understands our difficulties, our temptations. He gets it. Some other world religions are about escaping the, the difficulties and the sufferings of this life in order to experience inner peace and, and nirvana. The Bible doesn't speak about that. It speaks about a saviour who steps into our sorrows, who steps into our struggles. Isn't that wonderful? So that's the first thing. He's a, he's a priest who gets it, who understands what we've been through. Secondly, he's a priest who is perfect and eternal. If you've been in a job, how long have you been working in that job? Five years? Ten years? Maybe if you've been there for a long time, you, maybe you've worked there 30 or 40 years. Well, let me tell you about a man called Walter Orthman from Brazil. He's been working for the same company for 85 years. He holds the Guinness World Records for the longest career in the same company. They just make these world records up, don't they? Uh, so it was January 1938 he started 
in this textile company as a 15-year-old boy. And now he's 102 and uh, he's still going strong. He's, he's made his way up the ladder. He's, he's done the hard yards. But he will eventually retire or die. Walter will, will have done some um, lots for that company, but he will eventually retire or die. What about Old Testament priests? Well, the Old Testament priests weren't given the opportunity to, to work for 84 years. They, they weren't allowed to work until they were 25, and they had to retire when they reached 50. Doesn't that sound good? Uh, this meant, though, there was a lot of turnover. There was no continuity. And we also know that because they were sinful men, uh, they had to make uh, their own sacrifices before they sacrificed on behalf of the people. And sadly, we see throughout the Old Testament, if you read, uh, you see that some of these priests were corrupt. They were failures, even uh, these men who had been set aside to serve God. But Hebrews talks about this new high priest. He is eternal and perfect. Hear these words. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. So no matter what time you're living in, when people listen to this sermon on YouTube in 80 years' time, Jesus is still representing you unless he's returned. And he's perfect. He's perfect. He's not like those corrupt uh, high priests and priests that we had in the Old Testament. But such a high priest, it says, was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for his people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself, which leads us to our third point. He is the priest who sacrifices himself. The job of a priest wasn't a job for the faint-hearted. It wasn't for someone squeamish. It involved lots of death and lots of blood. Hundreds, thousands of sheep, goats and bulls being killed. And in our very sanitized Western lives, it seems strange and brutal and barbaric. Why would God allow such a system in the first place? Well, a sacrifice, by definition, needs to be something that costs. Something that you notice when it is missing. If you tell a friend that you've got a present for them, and you merely sacrifice, inverted commas, an old item of clothing that you found at the back of your wardrobe, it's not really a sacrifice, is it? If you're told you'll only get good at playing guitar, if you are sacrificial with your time and you sacrifice five minutes a week to practice and you get frustrated that you're not a guitar hero, it's not really a sacrifice, is it? Sacrifices are things that cost us. And when God gave the law to his people in the times of the Old Testament, they were living in a society that revolved around farming. And the crops they produced and the animals that they raised were a way of trading and looking after themselves. Cows and goats and sheep and goats and birds, they were all incredibly valuable. And in the sacrificial system introduced by God, in order for them 
to be aware of their sin. These were the things that they had to give up in order for them to be made right with God. The sacrifice was never intended to be pleasant. It was always intended to be harsh and difficult. And so when they were asked to give the most precious thing that they had, their livestock, their livelihood, and not some cast off, not some sheep with a wonky leg, they had to be the best of the best. And we have God's explanation why. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's the blood that makes atonement by the life. And it's the priests that carried out these sacrifices day after day, year after year, and the animals were a reminder of the costly nature of sin, the seriousness of sin. Death is what you deserve for your rebellion. It deserves punishment. And there was one day that was marked in every Jewish calendar. It was called the Day of Atonement. We learned what to atone meant earlier. And this was a very public and specific ritual. The whole community would, would leave their tents and they would all watch this as the high priest who had washed, washed in a certain way and put on special clothes would sacrifice a bull for his family. And the blood of the bull was to be sprinkled on the altar in the, in the deepest part of the temple, which they could only enter on one day a year. Then there would be two goats. They would take two goats. And one would be sacrificed for the sin of the people. And its blood was also sprinkled on the altar. It's, it's not for the faint-hearted. And then the other goat was what was called a scapegoat, a word that we use today. When someone is taking all the blame, we call them a scapegoat, don't we? Well, this is where it comes from. Because that goat would have the hands of the priest placed upon it, and then it would be released into the wilderness, never to be seen again. And though that goat symbolically carried on it all the sins of the people, never to be seen again, and their sins were then forgiven for another year, so they were destroyed. They were, they were um, that word that you saw in the reading, propitiation, that's what it means. But they were also taken away through the scapegoat. Both of these pictures God uses. And this had to be done every year. So what was it all leading up to? If you had to do it every year. Well, it was a picture of something better to come, something greater to come. Someone who would make sense of all these symbols. The whole ritual was a picture to help us understand something to the fact that what Jesus would do is so specific and so weird and so unique and so wonderful for a reason, because it's all meaning something. The sacrifices were acceptable to God, but they were not final or complete. They were not enough to take away the sins for all time. If they had been, then they wouldn't have to be repeated. Why? Well, because the life of a human is so much, is worth so much more than the life of an animal. I know we might have some animal lovers here tonight, but if if a um, a sheep dies, it doesn't make the news. But if a, a, a human dies, it makes the news, doesn't it? But human dies in a tragic way, it makes the news because a human life is worth 
far more. And as Hebrews 10 explains, in those sacrifices, there's a, a reminder of sins every year. But it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. God was preparing hearts. He wasn't someone whose entire sense of justice was driven by the pleasure he found in the smell of burnt animal carcasses and the sight of spilt blood. No, it was about the heart behind the sacrifice, the repentance and the remorse as the people saw that they had wronged our holy God. And that's why Jesus not only came as our great high priest, but became as our sacrificial lamb. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Because of our many sins, the many things that we have done wrong, our debt to God is, is huge. We need a sacrifice then of eternal importance. So when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, it was, it was the perfect sacrifice that we needed. And it didn't need to be repeated. We don't have an altar in this church because we don't need animal sacrifices. The sacrifice has been completed. Let me illustrate why. About 10 years ago, the trailer for a new Star Wars film came out. And I must have watched this trailer 20, 30, 40 times. It was the first Star Wars film in, in about 10 years. And I studied it. And each glimpse, I was still about 20 at the time, so it's still sad. Um, each glimpse of a, of a new character, and uh, each time I heard the of a lightsaber, or, or clues to who this new villain could be, it would build my excitement. But ultimately, it wasn't the trailer itself which was exciting me. It was the prospect of a full-length movie to come. And when this film came out a year later, Went to the midnight showing, of course. Cat wouldn't let me go in fancy dress. But after I'd seen that, I didn't watch the trailer again. Why would I? The trailer had served its purpose. It pointed forward to something greater. Nobody watches the trailer once they've seen the film. And in the same way, the sacrifices of the Old Testament we're only pointing towards something greater to come. Jesus was that great sacrifice. We don't need to sacrifice animals today. What Jesus has done at the cross is complete and final. Fourthly, we have a priest who prays for us. One of the responsibilities of the Old Testament priest was to pray for the people. They represented the people and they brought the needs and the worries of the people to God. And as they prayed, uh, because they were, wore these very specific clothes, which had the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on their garments, it would be engraved on these precious stones, which meant that they were represented and they were close to the hearts of the people, close to the hearts of the priests. So what is Jesus doing now? Jesus didn't wear these clothes. What is he doing now? Well, he's still carrying out the task of a priest. Our union, our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ didn't finish when he died at the cross and when he rose again. We remain in the Lord Jesus' prayers and he holds 
each and every one of his children close. It says uh, in John's Gospel, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. We so easily forget this. We sometimes feel all alone. We feel utterly helpless. But Jesus never leaves us or forsakes us. Now, Robert Murray McChainer, a 19th century Scottish pastor, said this. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He's praying for me. And we know what it sounds like when Jesus prays for us, because we have a sneak preview in John's Gospel, in John 17. After he's prayed for the disciples, he prays for future Christians. He says, I do not pray for these alone, referring to the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. So this is you here tonight, if you're a believer, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Isn't that amazing? That the Father's perfect and eternal love for the Lord Jesus Christ is the love that he has for us. If you leave here with, with nothing else tonight, believer, leave with that. Father's perfect love for the Son is the same he has for believers. And this prayer wasn't a one-off. This wasn't just a one-time prayer that Jesus did and then left it. Hebrews 7, 25 says this, Christ is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede, to pray for them. It's encouraging, isn't it? When a friend says to you, when you're going through a time of difficulty, they say, I'm praying for you. It's lovely to hear that. But it's so much more special, isn't it? When the greatest friend of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't just pray for you, but he never stops praying for you. Fifthly and finally, he is the priest who makes us priests. My dad uh, was and is a pastor. He's a pastor in London. And uh, I grew up in London and my friends at school didn't really understand what my dad did. So they would often kind of, kind of sheepishly ask me, Oi, is your dad like a priest or something? And um, I, would, I would say no um, and try to explain what he did. Uh, it was better than some, sometimes they would ask if he was the Pope. And he was... I didn't try and explain that. That's too much to explain. But yeah, I, I, I should have answered differently. In some ways, my dad is a priest. And if you're a Christian here tonight, you're a priest too. You won't be expected to wear flowing robes and a headdress. And thankfully, you don't have to kill any animals. Because in the moment when the Lord Jesus Christ died, where the, this thick temple curtain which stood there, stopping anyone from going in apart from that priest one day a year. Uh, when Jesus died, that was torn in two. And that was God's way of showing 
that the priesthood that the Old Testament showed us no longer needed to exist. Why? Because now people could come to God through what Jesus had done. They didn't need to go through a high priest. That they, they had the great high priest who had died once and for all. And now that curtain had been torn open. So now we are serving as priests. 1 Peter, we read these words. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. So you've, you've heard that, you think, why? How? What, what am I meant to do if I'm a priest? Well, just as the Old Testament priests were, were called to be set aside, to be anointed, to wear a special clothing, and to be ceremonially washed, we are set aside, we are sanctified and made holy by God. We are anointed not by this special oil, but we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're not ceremonially washed, but now we're baptized, showing that we have died to our sin and risen with Christ. We don't wear special garments with special rocks and special headdresses, but we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And whereas the Old Testament priests would make animal sacrifices, our whole lives are called to be a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Everything that we do, everything that we say, ought to be for God. We have an amazing privilege. The priests of the Old Testament would be able to go into the Holy of Holies, into God's special presence once a year. But we have unlimited and direct access to God at all times because the work of Christ. Priests were the one who acted on behalf of the people and mediated between men and God. We are to do the same today. All believers are to share the good news of the gospel, to be the light in the dark. We are being set aside, just as the priests were, to show Christ to others. And as we do so, it's an intimidating task, isn't it? We know that the great high priest is praying on our behalf. So let's finish this part of our worship before we come around the communion table by singing before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect faith, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Let's stand and then Gareth is going to lead our time around the table.